0: It's great to be here. Uh,
1: Craig, uh, we're here in the Philippines, but I also know that you've done work in China, in South Korea, as well as in Malaysia. What are your thoughts on training, uh, on leadership and organizational transformation here in Asia? There is such a vibrant energy here in Asia right now. And I think
0: that's centered around the opportunities for change. I think people are really excited about the changes that are taking place in, in their countries. And those changes are are visible. You can see these countries changing, not only with the buildings and like the physical space and the layout and the development that we see, but also in the organizations. And so we have organizations like Ayala and and Sunway that are kind of leading the charge in, in their respective countries on becoming 21st century tree companies that are not only meeting the needs of their of their customers, but are also very engaged in building their communities. Mm. Um, and the great thing about doing trainings here in Asia is we have the opportunity to work with that, to work with everyone from senior level executives down to students and everyone in between. We work with entrepreneurs, we work with with politicians, we work with individuals who are in nonprofits as well as those who are, who are working or even those who are starting up their own for profit ventures. And I think the the tie, the thread that brings them all together. Is there excitement around the possibilities and the opportunities that are present in modern day, modern day Asia?
1: So your research focuses on organizational transformation and organizational learning. So help us understand uh, when when did you become when did you become passionate about this subject that you would take a do a Ph.D. to study it?
0: There's two there's two particular experiences that immediately come to mind that.
1: Inform my
0: interest in organizational change. And the first is I worked in an admissions department at a university. And what I found when I was working there is that the department, as well as the broader umbrella that it sat in the university, was incredibly resistant to change. They refused to change most of their processes, change personnel. And this really had negative impacts, not only on the students, but also on the faculty and the staff and on the organization of or the university as a whole. I compare that to my experience playing baseball for the college baseball team or the university that I went to. And this was a an organization or a, an organization, uh, a team that went from being a very mediocre to subpar baseball team to being one of the top baseball teams in the nation over the course of three or four years. And my interest had been in why do some organizations, are they able to make those sort of transformations whereas some other organizations, are either reluctant to do so, don't know how to, or just are so enmeshed in what they their current practice is that they're just inert and they can't change.
1: And so let's talk about those two experiences. You're, what, you're the, the one at the admissions uh, department as well as the one at the baseball team. What was the key difference between these two organizations, between these two systems?
0: Yeah, I think the key differentiator was... There was a, a culture shift that took place on the baseball team and there was a willingness by everyone involved with the team coaches players trainers everyone down to even the people mm. who did laundry um, for us a willingness to change to look at old processes that weren't producing outcomes that that were successful and to throw those out and to try something new and the admissions department refused to even consider ideas that mm. were new that might improve processes what sparked that change in the baseball team? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I've thought about this and it's difficult to pin down an exact moment where, you know, on this side it was, it was a poor baseball team and on this side it was a good baseball team. I don't think there actually is one. What happened was in my second year in the program, the team experienced a little bit of success. And from that success, the team, the culture on the team started to shift from being one of just accepting mediocrity to one that no longer accepted mediocrity that really wanted to excel And then in my third year in the program, we regressed a little bit. We went back to some old habits. And I think that that was kind of the awakening moment for us going into my third year or my fourth and final year in the program where there was just a wholesale embrace by the entire team, everyone who was a part of it in the idea that we can and will be a very successful team. And this consequently led to a team that had the highest winning percentage in Division One baseball that year.
1: What was Harvard like and does it live up to its name?
0: Absolutely. It was Harvard makes you feel like you're part of something special every day that you're there. And I think that the real value that Harvard has, don't get me wrong, the professors are excellent. They're some of the most or some of the leading researchers in the world on their topics. but the real value of Harvard is that they get very talented driven students who you who you, who you then become part of community with. And you learn from each other mm. and so some of my most cherished harvard memories was the the most formative learning experience that i had came from interactions with peers mm. more so than with interactions with curriculum or with professors mm. so i am, am regularly in touch with my my friends from HGSE mm. um, anytime that i'm in one of their cities for a conference or for business i will try to meet up mm. with them because those those connections are so strong and so important to me that i mm-hmm. I really make it a priority to to maintain those connections and those friendships, and I think some of the most formative experiences I have were in informal conversations when we were discussing the role of of learning in life, and you know we we had the opportunity to get pretty philosophical and to really ask deep, penetrating questions about what is the purpose of education? Why are we why are we dedicating so many so much money and time and effort into into learning.
1: So you talk about your own personal experiences. Now, what are some of the most interesting cases of organizational transformation uh, that you that you do research on or that you study on uh, in, at university?
0: Yeah. Again, I think I'm going to use I think I'm going to use two examples. There'll be one yeah. that's Blockbuster, who failed to change, and then Marvel, who who has experienced great success because of a change. See. So first, Blockbuster huge retail giant of of rental videos and had experienced success for decades. And because of their success, they were so inert that when the opportunity came or the threat came uh, of digital streaming, of people no longer having to go to a video store to rent their videos, that it created an opportunity for an organization or a company like Netflix to come in to fill the space that Blockbuster was neglecting But Blockbuster didn't see Netflix as a threat. Um, And Blockbuster laughed the CEO of Netflix out of the room um, because they just didn't think that people were going to be into streaming, that they didn't think that uh, their video rental business was going to go the way of the Mm. dinosaur. And because of, it seems to me, because of the success that they had, it blinded them to the need to change. Mm. And we can juxtapose that to, to Marvel. Marvel was floundering. Not a lot was coming out and they had a new CEO come in and he shifted the strategy from one of just selling comic books and doing some things like that to licensing the products almost shifted the entire strategy of the organization and people bought in and Marvel is now what it is. Yeah. The the CEO comes in, he recognizes that the strategy is failing. And he proposes that they switch to more of a licensing model mm. to where they now license all the Marvel characters out to these different entities who, who might want to use them for merchandise, but primarily the big boon for them has been movies. Mm. And I don't think that it, a Marvel movie has passed recently without um, surpassing the hundred million dollar threshold in, mm. in ticket sales. So I'd be very surprised if there was one that did that. But then that not only is movie revenue driving or ticket sales driving their revenue but also all the product licensing that comes after a movie so action figures t-shirts and this was something they weren't doing before
1: i see now what are some practices of change makers like when it was whether it was on your baseball team or whether it was at marvel uh, what are some of the practices that change makers can do when when they see that their organization just needs to change that's a great question i think change makers
0: have to approach the problem with fresh eyes and be willing to take experiments or willing to experiment and take risks. Mm-hmm. So we see Marvel switching to a licensing a licensing model. They didn't know if that was going to work out. Um, on my baseball team, for example, the coach introduced kind of a new hitting philosophy. We were gonna to try to hit this certain way mm-hmm. and he needed people to buy in and the team bought in and it led to success. He didn't know if that was going to happen. He could have stuck with the status quo that led to mediocre outcomes. He wasn't gonna get fired because of those outcomes. But he decided he wanted to try something new, and blockbuster. We see an unwillingness to try something new, or a willingness to try something new, but it was too late.
1: Mm, I see. And so, um, what is some advice that you want to, that you can give to change makers who seem to be, you know, face like impossible situations, in this possible, impossible environment to make that change?
0: Yeah, I have two pieces of advice that I think are critical. And the first is to approach the situation with curiosity. And the second is to embrace failure. Mm-hmm. And so what I mean by the first of ap- approach the, the situation with curiosity is a changemaker needs to come in asking questions mm-hmm. and trying to understand why might this not be working anymore? What might be coming in the future that we need to prepare for that we're not seeing right now? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're, if the changemaker is having trouble getting people on board, why? why aren't people coming on board so rather than dictating this is my vision this is what you should do simply asking why it does mm-hmm. a lot to not only improve relations with those who you're trying to bring on board with the change but also understand what is actually the nature of the problem and the second one the embrace failure part i think is key for change makers because they're going to be entering into the unknown a change maker by definition is someone who's trying mm-hmm. to change and try something new changes often means that we're trying something new And those, not every attempt is something that is going to end successfully. And so if a change maker is completely risk averse and unwilling to embrace the learning that can come from failure, then they're unlikely to see any any sort of long-term success out of their desired change. I
1: see. So number one is to uh, approach a situation with fresh eyes, with curiosity, asking questions. Yes. Second is to... Uh, embrace uh, to have a uh, to have a high tolerance uh, for ambiguity or failures if that's if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, I would argue that it's more than actually a high tolerance that it's actually an, em- embracing, an embrace of yeah, allowing that the accepting and welcoming failure as part of the process of achieving the long-term outcome if we're so focused on short-term outcomes you know if, if Marvel's just concerned with with this new movie, is, if we license our characters to this movie, mm-hmm. is this one movie going to be successful? Mm-hmm. Well, that one could have been a dud. Mm-hmm. But if they don't take away any learning from that and try it again, then p- perhaps a second, third, or fourth iteration of of a Marvel character movie would turn out to be successful. So, mm-hmm. uh, an unwillingness to embrace failure leaves a lot of valuable information on the table.
1: So, I think in some ways, uh... An organization that's in deep trouble, like, or perhaps in just a state of mediocrity and everyone can recognizes that and everyone can buy in, in some ways, you know, experimentation, uh, even, you know, short-term failures are accepted. But what about companies that are doing well, like that are that blockbuster and, you know, the market is very, very stable, uh, but yet, you know, there, are, there may be disruptions that they might not be aware of how do you how does an organization keep perhaps its core business but then you know uh, create that space for experimentation or for new business ventures or models
0: yeah i think that the ceo of netflix summed it up really nicely when he said that too many of our shows are being highly rated which Mm. means that we're not taking big enough risks Mm. And I think successful organizations are actually positioned better than those that are failing or floundering to really take these types of risks because they're not risking their entire organization on a new, a new strategy. I see. So an organization that is successful can try out little projects here and there. They don't have to be big, just small attempts at what would happen if we do this, what would happen if we try this out? So for next, week, what would happen if we try this type of show? Um, And if and like the next Netflix CEO said, some of those should result in failure and that's a sign that we're actually pushing the envelope Mm -hmm. enough that we're seeing the limits of what our success can be.
1: So I think it's being able to create a structure where perhaps those failures don't affect the overall profitability and the the main success. Is that that the right way to say it?
0: Ideally, the company won't go under with, with an attempt or an experiment. Um, of trying something new. Yeah. So trying to, I guess, insulate the core company from what might be something new. But I think that if if an organization gets too protectionist with their core, their core business model, that if something does pop up mm-hmm. that might be a new direction that could lead to more success, say Blockbuster tried out streaming and found out it was really successful because people hate late fees, um, they have to now be willing to follow that path. Mm-hmm. And if they're unwilling to follow that, they could find something really interesting and it can end right there. I see.
1: Um, so right now we're uh, we're having this interview here in the Philippines uh, where you're teaching a program, uh, you're co-teaching a program on adaptive leadership, uh, leading an agile workforce for the 21st century. Uh, tell us about the program and your uh, role in the teaching.
0: Yeah, so the program is focused on how do we as individuals and organizations approach difficult problems and challenges. They don't have one right answer. And how do we get Marshall resources and Marshall people to be, to be on the same, same page as us and to see this vision and go with us where we want to go. Um, and my role in that yeah, as a co-teacher is I'll be facilitating a lot of discussions so that we can help our participants learn from each other. There's so mm-hmm. much experience and rich, diverse backgrounds in the participants. And if we can get them to speak to each other and to share their experiences with each other, there's a lot of learning that can happen that way. So I'll be doing a lot of that. in addition to that, I'll be running a case study where we look at, um, the organization Technoserve, who deals with poverty and trying to alleviate poverty, how they went into Haiti and through changing the way that the supply chain operated by offering microfinance loans was able to improve the outcomes over 30,000 Haitian mango farmers. Mm, And it was a very difficult problem. It had a lot of stakeholders and they couldn't top down mandate a change. They had to get everyone on the same page and move
1: forward together. Mm. Uh, So the program is called adaptive leadership, but it also integrates uh, elements of design thinking. Uh, I know that you worked at a design thinking firm um, back in in the United States. Now, what... um, in organizational transformation, what is the relevance? How, how is design thinking used uh, in organizational transformation?
0: So, there's two things about design thinking that I think are really important for organizational change. The first is, and we've already talked about it, it's an experimentation. Mm-hmm. And the second is empathy. Mm-hmm. And why is empathy so important? Often in organizational change initiatives, we forget these are actual humans that have to implement first have to buy in the organizational change, which is difficult enough, but then they have to implement the organizational change and empathy. If we begin the organizational change process by trying to empathize with those who are going to be implementing the organizational change, we're much more likely to get them on board because we have an idea about why they might not want to, or why why they might want to, but we also might get a better idea of what the problem is because we're talking to people who actually are doing this work every day. And this goes back into the idea of the curiosity mindset is asking questions why and trying to understand the perspective of the stakeholders involved in the change is likely to lead to better outcomes than simply trying to push something through.
1: So what are some uh, change initiatives that have happened in government or in municipalities?
0: Yeah, I think one of the most impactful changes that has taken place in the last 10 years in governments is the formation of what are called behavioral insight teams or nudge units um, and these have increased outcomes or improved outcomes for organ donation retirement savings voting I mean what they do is these are it started out in the in the United Kingdom with what's called the the original behavioral insight team and it was just a small group of, of five or six um, employees and they just tried to implement behavioral economics into policy that's our entire goal and They quickly had successes with the the British police department or the British police academy, as well as retirement savings, um, of new employees coming into the, to the British government and other, or other governments started to see the success that the British government was having with applying behavioral economics to, um, to policy and subsequently a number of other countries. I think it's something like 40 now Mm -hmm. have behavioral teams who apply um, behavioral decision making behavioral economics to policy and it, it really has improved outcomes for a, a number of people in, in disparate countries across the
1: world. Wow uh, what are some what's some of the impact that's been made in other countries? Yeah so they
0: that's a good question
1: um, some of the the highest
0: profile examples as I mentioned is organ donation by simply changing the way that a person signed up to be an organ donor mm. from it being a default of no to a default of yes increases organ donation by something like 50 to 60 percent wow. um by changing the default savings rate on a on an incoming employee from zero to two percent or zero or two percent to five percent is going to equal hundreds of thousands of dollars in increased mm. in, in retirement saving for employees for voting there's been a recent push to just have the default be that you're automatically enrolled to vote when you apply for a driver's license and these have long-term consequences for countries the more individuals they get to vote the better the democracies are going to work the more organ donors they have more lives are going to be saved Um, more people who are saving for retirement mean that they're going to not only have a better um end of life and last 20 years or so of their life but also they're going to rely less on government assistance
1: so just a small change that they made in the form, the design of the form, and perhaps how the how the users interact with that form, it just had, had monumental impact uh, across huge, the line.
0: Huge impacts. And the great thing about about nudges is they're very cost effective. Mm. It doesn't cost a lot of money to change the default from no to yes, or even a thing that's called active choice, where the default's no longer no. You just have to choose whether it's yes or no. Most people want to be organ donors but the defaults no, so the easiest thing to do is just Mm -hmm. to keep
1: it no. Mm -hmm. if you just make people choose organ donations also go up so it's a very simple application of design thinking yes and what are some of the industries that you think are in which this framework of adaptive leadership uh, of design thinking are most relevant right now
0: i think any industry that is experiencing turmoil and as well as rapid growth mm-hmm. fits well with adaptive leadership and design thinking. And honestly, that seems like every industry at the moment that seems like the, the days of a stable industry, um, maintaining it's basically the way that the industry operates, maintaining that over decades is not going to happen anymore. We could mm-hmm. see the entire trucking industry be wiped out in the next five years mm-hmm. because all trucks will be self-driving. hmm which for the last 80 years, they haven't been, obviously. And so I don't think that there is any one specific industry or two specific industries that this framework is is best suited for. I think it's best suited for every industry that's undergoing turmoil and needs to change, and that's every industry.
1: Craig, we're about to wrap up uh, our program. Is there anything else you want to mention?
0: Yeah, I think the final thing is just my level of excitement of being engaged in this work. So with the Center for Asia Leadership, we're bringing in some of the highest quality thought frameworks, educational opportunities from leading institutions like Harvard and Stanford, but contextualizing it within the problems and opportunities that are existing mm-hmm. in, in Asia. And I think this provides a very unique opportunity for our participants to, to gain access to, to these frameworks mm-hmm. and these, these techniques and these to these problem-solving methods. and do it in a context that they can see directly how it applies to their problems. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, John. Yeah.